If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to talk about the ten plagues today, and since it takes about five chapters, we're going to not read all five chapters, um, but get get an overview. But it is helpful as we are continuing through this, what is the big story of the Bible about? Exodus gives us a language to describe what Jesus has done for us. And uh, Luke 9, when Jesus is on top of the mountain in the transfiguration, and he's having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about, it says, his exodus, his departure that was about to happen at Jerusalem. Uh, that, that Jesus conceives of his, his sacrificial death and resurrection as, as an exodus event of setting God's people free from sin and slavery and death. So that's why this helps give us language to describe. That's what exodus does. It gives us language to describe the gospel, uh, what Jesus has done for us. And so let's read the text and we will pray Um, and it should be projected for you behind me so exodus 5 1 to 9 chapter 7 there's 14 to 18 and chapter 10 21 to 29 says afterward moses and aaron went and said to pharaoh thus says the lord the god of israel let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness but pharaoh said Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to the lying words. Then chapter 7, verses 14 to 18. This is the first plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And then chapter 10, verses 21 to 29. The ninth plague, darkness. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you, but only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. I take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have seen us. You've, you've seen our trouble, heard our cries, and come down to fight for us, to deliver us from this present evil age through Jesus. And I pray you help us see that good news that you fight for us with your justice, uh, that you are the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God who rules and reigns over us justly. And that is forming us into people who see and care for the suffering of others. And so I pray your spirit would would be at work today to lead us into de- deeper faith and repentance and a willingness to love our neighbors as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you remember last week, the, the way we talked about this is to read Exodus and to, to see the gospel in Exodus is to not put yourself in Moses' shoes as the hero, it's to put yourself in Israel's shoes, uh, that we are like Israel, enslaved to death and misery and, and enslaved to sin, uh, that, that we aren't the rescuer, we are the rescued, that, that we aren't the strong, we're the ones who have been bound in chains, both of our own making and something that's been afflicted to us. Uh, we aren't the refuge, we're the ones who are oppressed. And you get a glimpse of just how beat down Israel is in an earlier chapter that after Pharaoh said, okay, you guys are just lazy, and, and clearly you need more work, and he demands them to make the same amount of bricks without straw, um, Moses comes to Israel and says, okay, here is the gospel promise. Will you trust the Lord, though your life goes not well? And it, in fact, it seems to get worse before it gets better. And here's, here's the promise. It says, this is God speaking at the end of chapter 5, I have heard your groaning. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will redeem you. With great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then it says, They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. It's such a graphic picture of Israel's mental frame of mind. Uh, Their slavery and their suffering is physically suffocating their hope. 
and they don't hear God's words. They don't obey, right? Their suffering is so bad that they can't hear good news. They're hopeless, which uh, sets the stage for the plagues, right? The plagues take place to convince Israel (laughs) to show them that God is for them and is there to rescue them and redeem them, that they would listen to his voice, but it's also there to persuade Pharaoh to listen to the Lord's voice, right? That's what the plagues are about. So in chapter 5, when God comes to Pharaoh through Moses and says, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, what is Pharaoh's response? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I'm not going to let Israel go. They need to get back to work. And so by way of introduction, the, the plagues in the context, or or God's answer to that question, who is the Lord? And he's answering both Israel, because they don't know, they're they're too miserable to to really hear him, and to answer Pharaoh, who doesn't know and is actively saying no to God. He says, why would I obey his voice? Uh, The plagues are for both the the sinner and the sinned against, both the oppressor and the oppressed. Who is the Lord that I should trust him and obey him? And so let's talk about the plagues, right? Now, it's really helpful. I've heard some misunderstandings when it comes to the plagues. Maybe not not necessarily here, but um, people who've grown up in church have heard this story preached and they left saying, I just can't trust a God who loves and rescues the good people and just destroys all the bad people because it sets you Christians up to do the same thing, right? They get the impression that Israel are the good ones and the Egyptians are the bad guys. And it's very clear, Egyptians are the oppressors. They're doing evil. But the more you read the story, Israel's just as bad as they are. Um, They are, Israel's both sinner and sinned against. They are not good, they're loved. Uh, They're in a covenant relationship with the Lord. That's, why, that's what Passover is all about, is they too need the blood of the Lamb, just like to, to be saved from the angel of death. That's next week. And we just saw, right, Israel's refusing to listen to the voice of the Lord, just like Pharaoh, though for different reasons. Right? And so the plagues are God's rescue of his beloved people. It's the gospel that's available to anyone who will listen to the voice of the Lord. So with that, let's... Let's jump in here and and answer that question. Who is the Lord? What is he like that I should obey him? And we're going to see that the plagues are a part of God's mission. The plagues show us God's justice, and the plagues show us God's salvation. So those are the three points we're going to look at here. The plagues are missional. That's that's the first point. Because when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says to the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is that guy and why should I listen to him? No, I'm not going to let them go. Um, Pharaoh is acting like any sane, rational human being does when it comes to spiritual things. You don't listen to the Lord until you know the Lord. Have that conversation with a neighbor. Give them any number of the Bible's commands and they're going to say, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? Why should I convert to your way of believing and seeing? He's not, it's not my God, that's not my spirituality. I mean, pick any clear moral issue that God gives, 
commands to do, right? To be pro-life from beginning to end, all of life, before all of, huma- before all of humanity. Right here. People ask the question, why should we limit who marriage is for? Why should we care about oppressed minorities, right? As we're talking about here in our text. Or why should I care about your God that you say will judge? They're asking those questions of, just like Pharaoh, who is the Lord? I don't know him. Why should I listen to his voice, his commands? Pharaoh is very much like our modern world where he has his gods and his way of believing, and he's being confronted by Moses with the true and real and living God. This is an evangelistic encounter, quite dr- much more dramatic than our ordinary ones <laughs> with the plagues. Right? The plagues are God's evangelistic persuasion and confrontation and battle against, with Pharaoh and his heart to let his people go. But it's not just for Pharaoh, it's for, for Egypt and all the earth. That's what you're going to see here. Right? That these plagues are actually part of God's mission in the world that he would be known, that he would be trusted, and that he would be listened to and obeyed. Where? Not just here, but in all the earth. Whoever you are. Right? I'll, I'll, show, I'll show this to you. Right? I mean, one, the plagues are a particular... Uh, divine confrontation that, that, that Moses and God have, are, are doing here to show the Pharaoh and the Egyptians that the Lord is sovereign over all. That all these plagues, these things that happen, the, the river turning to blood, uh, the frogs, the flies, the gnats, the boils, the livestock, particularly the firstborn son of Pharaoh, they're all there to show that God is sovereign over every aspect of life and death, not their Egyptian gods. Right? So they had a, a river god who provided life and fertility. They, had, they believed that frogs represented some kind of divinity uh, that uh, would give the breath of life. Um, right? God is showing I'm in charge of all of creation. Therefore, listen to me. Right? And so chapter 7, what does God say in verse 17 about why he's doing these things? It's so you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. It's because the Nile turns to blood, I want you to know the Lord. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I bring Israel out from among them. So it's not just Pharaoh, now it's another nation, right? God's, he's on mission to, to reveal himself to Egypt, when you get to chapter 8, all right, the, the frogs are taken away. And it's, why are the frogs taken away? Why does God relent? Why does he show mercy? That you will know that there's no one like the Lord our God. Right? So there's mission again. Uh, before another plague in chapter 9, when God says, this time I'm going to send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, that you will know the Lord. I find this helpful that to put the plagues in the big story as part of God's mission and desire to undo the curse which affects all of the nations in the world. 
that they would know there is none like him. As he says, there's none like me. That you would know his uniqueness. That's why you should trust him. Because there's no one like him. I mean, in other words, we're doing now exactly what God intended 3,000 years ago. That we look at this event, we look at the signs and wonders, and we look at what God did in history so that we would get to know what he's like and trust him and then obey his voice. The plagues were part of God's mission to make his name known over all the earth, that they would know him as the Lord of justice and the Lord of mercy, and that they could get in on it should they listen to his voice, get in on his mercy. Right. So the, the justice is part of the, the justice of the plagues coming against the Egyptians, doing, doing harm against them. It also has a missional purpose that they would repent, uh, that, they, well, that Pharaoh would relent, let the people go. And so if that is true, and it is, it's, it's all the way through the plagues that it's over and over again, it says, so that you will know that, that I am the Lord. I think that that's teaching us something, uh, that we should be less ashamed to talk about the Lord of justice, that, that we have a God who is, deals with bullies, who sees the suffering, and does come in judgment. That's part of God's mission in the world to be known as a God who will come in judgment. It's part of his uniqueness. Right? And it's good news for all the oppressed in the world. It's not hard to, to not think of, it's really easy to think about the current events right now and what's happening on the other side of the world, but Ukraine is one place. Uh, it's been happening all throughout human history. God is just, and he sees and hears the cries of the oppressed. See, if there is no God who made the heavens and the earth, who is eternally and unchangeably just, who made all humans in his image, uh, to be seen, known, loved, and to be just as he is just. Uh, you could apply that to current events. Russia's just doing whatever is best for them, and who are we to say they're wrong? When they're, they're acting just like a wolf tearing through sheep, and wolves just do what wolves do. Right? I mean, that's what the writer of the Ecclesiastes was after when he said, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them because on the side of their oppressors was power and there was no one to comfort them. There is no God outside of the sun, outside of creation. It's just the way it is. Now, Exodus is showing us that there really is a God who hears the cries of the innocent, the oppressed, who is a stronghold for the, for the oppressed, and he's the one who says with concrete, real, moral specificity, <laughs> what's happening here is wrong. Right? It's evil. Right? So we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about it in public with our neighbors. I mean, we read Psalm 98, which is a whole celebration along with the rivers and the trees because the Lord is going to come in justice and to rule with equity, with fairness. God is judge over all. And the plagues are showing us that. It's a, it's a 
preview of the end, so to speak, of what God will do to those who don't repent, that he will pour out his justice on those who've caused harm. Now the plague show us this God who reveals his mercy and justice through this rescue so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. It's mission. Now, second point here is we talk about justice. God's mission is he wants to be known and listened to as he's going to set Israel free. But we get to see how God's justice works through the plagues. I mean, first, it's really interesting to look at this. Look at who God enlists in his battle against Egypt, their gods, and Pharaoh. Right? Because here, I'll just run through the ten plagues. So you have the river turning to blood. Then the frogs come up out of the nasty water, and, and they infest the land. And then, seemingly, the frogs die. There's, there's gnats and flies everywhere. Those are the, and then the livestock die. And then there's boils on the skin. There's hail, like kill you, kill you and all your animals kind of hail, terrifying hailstorm. There's locusts that devour every plant in the area. And then there's darkness for three days, and it culminates in, in the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Uh, justice, taking from Pharaoh what Pharaoh is trying to take from God, which is his firstborn, Israel. So you start to look at this, the Lord is a warrior fighting for his people and he has filled his battle ranks with all of creation. (laughs) He's enlisted creation to fight for him. He's moving heaven and earth, if you will, to shake the sky, seas, and land to say, let my people go. I I have sovereign power over these things. So that Israel would know his love, And set them free, and Pharaoh would know God is real and respond accordingly. Let his people go. And so, this is what Israel got to see. They got to watch. I can't imagine, just imagine what that would be like. They get to watch God fight for them with the plants, the animals, the sky, the land. Starting in plague four, Israel was actually protected from many of these. Uh, They don't suffer as Egyptians suffer. They're in Goshen. They're in a land just outside. Um, Probably because um, the Egyptians were able to imitate the first two plagues. But when they got to the third one with the gnats, they're like, we can't do that. This is God's finger. And then from that point on, God says, I'm going to make a division between your people and my people. So they can see that God is a stronghold, a refuge for the oppressed. And they get to watch God fight for them. And so this is teaching us something about God's justice, that we as Christians can rejoice that God is just and that he is willing to fight for his people like this, even by enlisting creation itself. Get to watch him fight for you. Second, this is how God's justice works. Look at how natural these supernatural plagues are. Have you thought about this before? That Yeah, they're extraordinary acts of power because they happen at God's command. It is supernatural, but they all could be excused as naturally occurring events, as a freak occurrence, right? And in other words, all of creation is just going crazy in Egypt. 
But there is a way to look at it and say, yeah, if the river has turned to blood, why would frogs stay in the, wa in the, the water they can't live in? And then if they die, sh that for sure is going to attract all the bugs, the flies, the gnats. And if there's death everywhere from these creatures and flies spreading disease, it's natural to think, well, there's going to be dead livestock and boils. I mean, horrific hailstorms hap storms happen. I mean, Bethany and I went through ones where like softball-sized hail was coming down in Mississippi under a green sky. It's like softball and baseball-sized. Right? Not good for your car. <laughs> Locust swarms happen in that part of the world. They're, see you know, they're in cycles. And so there is that sense where God is equipping his justice to respond to Pharaoh, and he's commanding these things to happen, and it cannot be seen any other way other than God going to work. But Pharaoh also had to be wondering, like, is this just some freaky, weird coincidence? Right. And what you see is that the plagues are God reversing creation in order to set his people free. Right. In other words, what God is inflicting on Egypt, he's undoing what he did in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, that there were 10 words to create a world of beauty and order to take the world from uh, unlivable and uninhabitable and, and chaotic to beautiful and organized and full of harmony and shalom and peace. With the plagues, God gives 10 words of judgment to go back from here's a great place to live Let's go back to darkness, chaos, and death. Right? See, the plagues are showing you God's ordered world falling apart because of Pharaoh's disobedience. Animals attack humans instead of serving them. Insects attack plants, right? So there's nothing to eat. Water's taking life rather than giving life. It's chaos, not order. The plagues leave you with darkness and chaos and death, not life. And so let's, let's pause here. What is that teaching you and I about God's justice? And as one, one person put it, Egypt is giving a picture of how life melts down when you're under God's judgment and on his justice. In other words, God comes to you and I as humans, and says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to reflect my glory, my, my character, my justice, my mercy in the world. And our natural sinful selves go, who is the Lord and why should we listen to him? And then what happens is there's a supernaturally ordained natural fallout. Our bodies fall apart. We fall apart psychologically, we fall apart physically, we die. And so Tim Chester writes that when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and you worship something in creation, you make something in creation more important than the living God, you reject him and you don't listen to his voice and he says, okay, I'll give you what you want, what happens? Emotional darkness, you have mental breakdown, relationships fall apart, physical addictions take place, you enslave yourself to sin, and we die. Right? I mean, there's, there's the supernatural justice, and then there's God's justice working out in our everyday lives as we 
feel the weight of not being connected to him, right? So think about this. Take overwork, for example, which is what Israel's experiencing. It's not bad to work hard to provide for your family, but if after decades of working, I don't know, 80, 90 hours a week or something insane that your body's not naturally designed to do, not only will you fall apart mentally, right? You're going to burn out your adrenal glands. Uh, you'll ruin your health. Your body falls apart. Um, but it can ruin your marriage. Uh, it can break down relationships with your kids. It can leave you more lonely because you don't have any time for friends, <laughs> right? So you miss out on all these good gifts that God is saying. You need to order your loves rightly to, to flourish. And so there's natural fallout from not listening to the Lord's voice. Uh, you could take forgiveness. God says you must forgive, right? It's, it's not optional for the Christian. As God has forgiven you in Christ, therefore forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. What happens if you ignore that wisdom? Right? I mean, there's obvious relational breakdown, there's bit, but there's also, over time, bitterness. You find it harder to trust people. It becomes easier to quarrel and to hold grudges. It becomes harder to be a peacemaker and ends leaving you lonely and cynical because you refuse to forgive. Right? You end up being that grumpy guy on the front porch yelling at the kids to get off your lawn. <laughs> right? It's a serious thing, right? If, if you don't listen to God's command, whatever they may be, because they're for your good, his justice often works out in natural ways the way Romans 1 describes that he gives you what you want, and it leads to all kinds of conflict, trouble, even death. And so we feel his supernatural, natural judgment even now. I mean, haven't you experienced that reality? But that judgment and pain is what God is trying to use. What, no, not trying, he is using to be his megaphone to get Pharaoh's attention to get Israel's attention, to get our attention, that we would know he is the Lord. Right? What will get you to listen to his voice? So often, it takes pain. Right? I mean, here's C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain. He writes this really articulately. Right? The hum a human being will not, not even try to surrender what you want as long as everything seems okay. If all goes well, why in the world would I change what I want and listen to what God says? And then Lewis goes on to say, error and sin both have this characteristic that the deeper they go, the less their victim suspects their existence because it's a hidden evil. Right? You just can't see your sin because everything's going well. But pain, pain is unmasked. It's unmistakably evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he's being hurt, and pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but it's also impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities, he says. And anyone who has ever watched a glutton shovel down the best food as if they did not know what they were eating will admit you can even ignore pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
you hear what he's saying? Right? So often, the way God gets our attention is when life stinks <laughs> and we cry out, God, hear, hear me, I need your help. And that is the process where he slowly then starts to also show us our slavery to sin. Welcome to the way God's justice works. It's supernatural, like the plagues, but it's also natural. That as you refuse to listen to his voice, as we as sinners do, you run into all kinds of natural breakdowns, and even those are still trying to get your attention. Will you listen to the Lord's voice? Right? Are you listening? I mean, the other option is to just harden your heart and continue in the same direction and say, no, I don't, I don't know him and I don't want to listen. Right? I mean, the plagues are God's inbreaking of his justice, a preview of the end times when he will judge the earth for sure. But here in Exodus, as his justice falls on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he's giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear his voice and listen and obey. To say, to relent. For Pharaoh it would be, let God's people go. For Israel it would be, yeah, I'll trust you and I'll wait for you to let me free. So who will relent and obey God's voice? How do you get there? And that leads to the last point here as we look at God's salvation. Um, right? We've seen the plagues are missional. Uh, the plagues are showing us God's justice as he's getting all the nation's attention of what he's up to. Uh, that God's justice is going to go to work to lead the nations to faith. Right, but I want to show you this, that God's justice on the path to salvation throughout the plagues is a restrained justice. Right? He hasn't opened the floodgates fully. In other words, God isn't up there laughing, enjoying making the Egyptians squirm. He's, he's trying to persuade them. That's what we've been seeing in Ezekiel. I, the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'd rather they turn, change their minds, and live. I mean, one, you can just look at how often does the Lord relent to Pharaoh's request to stop? Every time till the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn. When you get to the 7th plague with the hailstorm, it's really interesting. God sends, right, our modern equivalent believe like you'd send little uh, pamphlets to let, let the people know you're about to bomb them. Right? That's what military does to save and protect civilians. Well, that's what God does in Egypt. Before the hailstorm, by the way, I'm going to drop hail. Anyone in the field, any livestock, anybody, they're going to die. So tell your people when they get out. And it says there were Egyptians who feared the Lord's word and listened and obeyed. Right? Because the goal is that the Lord would be known over all the earth. Right? It's a, his justice has a purpose that you would see him, know him, and run to his mercy. Right? In 9.16, it's very explicit. Right? It's, it's worth reading. Pages are stuck together here. In 9.16, it says, uh, For this purpose, God's saying to Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Right? What God does to Pharaoh 
for Israel is a dramatic display of the gospel for the whole world. And the door is actually open for the Egyptians to obey. He isn't, he isn't dropping everything he's got. He's, he's measured in his plagues to get them to change their mind. And that's actually what happens when you get to the end of the story when Israel leaves. As you find it's not just Israel leaving Exodus after Pharaoh finally relents. Who goes with them? A mixed multitude. People of different tribes. Egyptians went out. Whoever, whatever other slaves from different ethnicities that were there, they went out because they saw the Lord work. They saw his mercy. They saw his justice. They knew the Lord. And that's how you see that there is no one like the Lord. Because who is like the Lord who not only loves the weak and oppressed, but who's even willing to use his justice to persuade his enemies <laughs> to join him, to become part of his family, to be saved by grace, to listen to his voice, to turn and live. Like God is that gracious. That he even include Egyptians in his plan to redeem the world. Now, how does God then save through justice? It's through, turns out to be um, unrestrained judgment. He does come down eventually in unrestrained judgment. Uh, in the ninth plague, right, we already saw that God has distinguished between Egypt and his people and darkness fell over the land like pitch black, can't see your hands kind of darkness. It says no one did anything for three days. But in Goshen where Israel was, there was light. They had a, a refuge, a safe place from God's justice and God's judgment for his people, protected from the darkness. How does God save us? Well, it was centuries later, of course, when God's unrestrained justice breaks in in public, in human history, in the sight of all the nations, so that all the earth would know the Lord. And this judgment, this unrestrained judgment, came at a time through deep darkness. Because it was darkness that fell on Jesus when he was on the cross. Right, from, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, writes Matthew, it was dark over all the land as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're getting a glimpse of just of God's justice, unrestrained, pouring himself out, pouring out on Jesus Christ as he's being treated like Pharaoh. Right? All the plagues that, that you and I deserve, they've fallen on our Savior, Jesus Christ, to set us free from slavery to sin and death. Because when you're looking at the cross and you see the plagues fall down, you're seeing, you're seeing our maker die. You're seeing our maker be unmade, uncreated, so that we could have the light of God's presence with us always in a dark world. Right? That's what the resurrection gives us, the dawning of a new creation, that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that God is not judging you, but you have a smiling face shining upon you. And as Jesus said, what was the purpose of that unrestrained judgment that fell on him, not the world at that moment? He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples 
all nations to myself. That's John 12. Right? When I'm lifted up on the cross, it's not just for Israel. It's happening in the presence of the nations that everyone can look back and say, God acted in human history. This is what he is like. That, that when justice and mercy come together, right? justice asks no more because it all fell on Jesus. So what, what does that do? Well, it goes to work on our suffering, does it not? For all who are beaten down, unable to hear God's voice because of our harsh slavery and fear of death, it sets us free that we would know the Lord, that we are loved to the depths because God really has moved heaven and earth and even used creation itself to save us. He became human. You can really say justice smiles at you and I and asks no more, as the hymn writer put it. Because it all poured out on Christ. It takes that fear away. All right, I mean, listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. It's in the reflection in your bulletin. And the question is, how does God's judgment bring you comfort? Just think about that. How does it bring you comfort? And it says, in all my sorrow... In persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. And he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself in heavenly joy and glory. Isn't that amazing? It's one who was judged is the one who is now for you. Judgment now becomes a comfort. When you're suffering, when you're weeping, you can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, and he will rescue you. All right? But there's another piece to this. God's judgment on Christ also took place so that all those like Pharaoh who just adamantly, stubbornly, even to the end, refused to listen to God's voice who don't believe he's real, right? The cross happens so that they would see that God is a God of just judgment and that he takes sin and rejection and rebellion more seriously than we do. Right? I mean, it's fair to say that the plagues are pointing to the last judgment when Jesus will return to judge the quick and the dead to right all wrongs. And with unrestrained justice, say to all those who've rejected and refused to listen to the Lord's voice, even after he has given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, to say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's horrifying. And yet, he's gracious even with his patience. So, where do you find refuge? You find refuge with God's people. Uh, with Christ, where God's people are, in the light, with Christ, the light of the world. So to conclude here, what kind of church will we be if we take the plagues, the cross, the resurrection of Christ seriously? And I think one, one of the lessons we get here is we'll, we'll continue to take suffering seriously. Right? The fear from the world out there is if you believe in a God who judges That'll give us the freedom to judge. And I, that, that's the complete opposite of the whole story of the Bible. 
Because our testimony is the plague should have fallen on me and Jesus took my place. And since I now know both the paralyzing power of sin and my suffering, I'm now equipped to take suffering of other people seriously. To to not just see them as they're just being stubborn, but to also see them as suffering sinners, (laughs) praying for them to become saints. I mean, the Old Testament will continually say to Israel, you were a slave, you were a stranger, you were poor, you were weak, you know what that was like. Therefore, here's how you should love people. Do what is right. Treat them well. Relieve their suffering. And so you think about the, the mission of plagues that God would be known, and one of the things this does is it sends us out now Uh, having received God's grace to go take the suffering of others seriously, to listen for the places where suffering has suffocated the hope out of the room. Because then you have an opportunity to talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit gets to go to work and convict them of their sin and show them the Lord of justice and mercy. Because that's what the cross shows you. It shows you both. And if you really take, if we take the, the plagues seriously and we take the cross seriously and we take suffering seriously, that means we're going to be living out God's mission seriously. We'll take it, it it's real, this is life, right? Why does all this happen for you and I as the church? So that Jesus' name would be known among the nations that the Lord, his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Right? The people would actually know him. So that's why we do justice, uh, to meet the needs of the poor in our neighborhood. That's why we forgive. That's why we listen to the Lord's voice when he says, here's what you do. Here's how you live. Here's how you ought to be human. It's because we're participating in God's mission, that his name would be known. So, will you go? The Lord has set you free and poured out grace upon grace. What is he calling you to do? Will you listen to his voice now that you know he loves you? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this old but true text, this great picture of the gospel that you protect us from judgment, a judgment we deserve through the death of your son and And I pray that you would make Hope Church a place that that continues to love and proclaim the gospel and, and in our DNA desire to see Christ known and you would give us courage to even talk about the hard things in the Bible. Uh, When people are uncomfortable with your justice that we could show them the cross. So equip us to be your witnesses, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.